Greetings, literati, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Classic English Literature Subcast. I want to start this new little project by jumping back to the old English period, maybe 9th or 10th century, and look at a couple of unique poems in the Anglo-Saxon corpus. The first is Wolf and Eadweser, and the second is The Wife's Lament. They're unique because, alone among Old English poetry, they are first-person laments from the woman's point of view. The female is speaking in these poems. I've probably mentioned before that Old English lacks a romantic love poetry tradition, what the French would call fin amour. The elegy, that type of poem in which a usually male speaker laments his exile and mourns the passing of a warrior's golden age, is generally about as close to any real emotional expression in the Anglo-Saxon tradition. Think back to episode 4 of the podcast about the elegies The Wanderer and The Seafarer. But with today's two poems, we can see the elegy tradition turned inside out. Women weren't part of that comitatus bond that united the male members of a war band. They had no military obligations other than as, quote, peace weavers, that is, as property to be married off as a peace settlement between warring tribes. And they did not participate in the great victory feasts and rituals of Mead Hall comradeship. Yet the theme of exile, so prevalent in masculine military poems, becomes a meditation on the sorrows of love and marriage in today's texts. The first poem, Wolf and Eadweser, presents us with a puzzle, maybe even a riddle, a riddle in the Anglo-Saxon sense, like it's a question. Its dramatic situation is quite obscure. A female speaker worries about her husband, Eadweser, and her lover, Wolf, and her child. What she worries about is temptingly open to interpretation. Here it is in a translation by Kevin Crossley Harland. Pray. It's as if my people have been handed prey. They'll tear him to pieces if he comes with a troop. Oh, we are apart. Wolf is on one island, I on another. A fastness, that island, a fen prison. Fierce men roam there on that island. They'll tear him to pieces if he comes with a troop. Oh, we are apart. How I have grieved for my wolf's wide wanderings, when rain slapped the earth and I sat apart weeping, when the bold warrior wrapped his arms around me, I seethed with desire, and yet with such hatred. Wolf, my wolf, my yearning for you, and your seldom coming have caused my sickness, my mourning heart, not mere starvation. Can you hear, Aidway, sir? Wolf will spirit our pitiful whelp to the woods. Men easily savage what was never secure. Our song together. Now, since this is a podcast, you might not notice that the poem's first word, pray, is a noun, not a verb. Pray as in that which is hunted. The hymn of the second line is presumably the prey who will be destroyed if he comes with his warriors. And the speaker is apart from him. He, Wolf, is on another island, 
And she repeats her fear that he will be destroyed if he comes for her. And that refrain, oh, we are apart, is just so heartrending. She then gives us a rather passionate description of her yearning for her lover and how it has literally made her ill. And then my favorite part, that sharp question to her husband, quote, can you hear me, Aidway, sir? Rage, frustration, but also rebellion. And here's where the questions start. Has her husband locked her away from her lover? Is he literally listening to her speak, or is she shouting at the rain-soaked darkness? Then, and here's an interesting line, quote, Wolf will spirit our pitiful whelp into the woods. So you got a nice pun on the lover's name, the wolf, you know. The whelp is, of course, a child. But whose? To whom does the hour refer? Is the baby wolf and the speakers? Or is it Aidwaser and the speakers? And if the latter, why should Wolf take it? Is Aidwaser a cruel father as well as a husband? Now, if you read other translations, you do get different ways of interpreting the poem, especially with a poem this obscure and amorphous. Um, translation really does become an act of interpretation. But I like this one best because, to me, it most deftly weaves together the speaker's awful craving for her lover, her desperate fear for his destruction, and her teeth-clenched defiance. For my money, whatever the heck is actually going on here, this is one of the most raw and emotionally expressive poems I've ever read. And the second poem, The Wife's Lament, similarly offers us some ambiguous circumstances. Uh, here it is, again translated by Crossley Holland. I draw these words from my deep sadness, my sorrowful lot. I can say that since I grew up, I have not suffered such hardships as now, old or new. I am tortured by the anguish of exile. First, my lord forsook his family for the tossing waves. I fretted at dawn as to where in the world my lord might be. In my sorrow I set out then, a friendless wanderer, to search for my man. But that man's kinsmen laid secret plans to part us, so that we should live most wretchedly, far from each other in this wide world. I was seized with longings. My Lord asked me to live with him here. I had few loved ones, loyal friends in this country. That is the reason for grief. Then I found my own husband was ill-starred, sad at heart, pretending, plotting murder behind a smiling face. How often we swore that nothing but death should ever divide us. That has all changed now. Our friendship is as if it never had been. Early and late, I must undergo hardship because of the feud of my own dearest loved one. Men forced me to live in a forest grove, under an oak tree, in an earth cave. The cavern is age-old, and I am choked with longings. Gloomy are the valleys, too high the hills, harsh strongholds overgrown with briars, a joyless abode. The journey of my lord so often cruelly seizes me. There are lovers on earth, lovers alive, who lie in bed, while I pass through this earth cave alone and out under the oak tree at dawn. 
There I must sit through the long summer's day, and there I mourn my miseries, my many hardships, for I am never able to quiet the cares of my sorrowful mind, all the longings that are my life's lot. Young men must always be serious in mind and stout-hearted. They must hide their heartaches, that host of constant sorrows, behind a smiling face. Whether he is a master of his own fate or is exiled in a far-off land, sitting under rocky storm cliffs, chilled with hoar-frost, weary in mind, surrounded by the sea in some sad place, my husband is caught in the clutches of anguish. Over and over again he recalls a happier home. Grief goes side by side with those who suffer longing for a loved one. The speaker here sounds very like that of the wanderer. But again, the lamentation for exile, isolation, and loss changes dramatically when we realize that the speaker is female. All we really can tell here is that she has lost her lord, a husband from another tribe. Was she a peace weaver? The circumstances of her loss are cloudy. She says that, quote, Men forced me to live in a forest grove under an oak tree in the earth cave. Now note the triple-layered isolation here. She's in a forest, and so outside the bounds of civil society, and then she's under an oak and in a cave, so shunned repeatedly and, in a sense, prematurely interred. But why? Well, the line is ambiguous. She says, quote, Early and late, I must undergo hardship because of the feud of my own dearest loved one. It's the prepositional phrases here that mess us up. Has her husband been exiled and she banished because he took part in an unsanctioned blood feud with another tribe? Or is the feud between the husband and the speaker? She does say something about her lord having forsaken his family and that they laid plans for her. Was that because he married her against their will and to reconcile with his family? Has he put her out? It's difficult to say because the word translated as feud can either be a rather specific legal term for a blood feud or a fee grief, which is a comitatus obligation, or it can simply be a husband's hatred for his wife. She may not be sure either. In the last stanza, she says, quote, Whether he is a master of his own fate or is exiled in a far-off land, my husband is caught in the clutches of anguish. Over and over again, he recalls a happier home. Very elegiac, that. She doesn't know if their situation is by his own choice or imposed by others, but she is sure he must regret his loss. And I am too. I mean, who wouldn't want to be loved by someone as hungrily as these two women speaking in these poems love their lords? Whew. There has been, of course, speculation that these poems are not only from the point of view of women, but from the pens of women. Unsurprisingly, there is not too much scholarly support for this argument available via the casual Google search. A few folks have made the case that, you know, while literacy was not overcommon among the Anglo-Saxons, a large portion of the literate were female, so the possibility exists. 
Now, if you couple that with some documents chastising 8th century nuns for writing love poetry while they should be working, and you've got grounds for some very pleasing speculation at the least. We'll never really know, and perhaps at this remove, it is enough that the poems feel real to us, and that regardless of our current obsessions with sex and gender and writing, it's still profoundly human. Put these poems beside the Wife of Bath's materials, particularly her dissertation on the, quote, woe that is in marriage. Or maybe, more obliquely, think about Guinevere in Geoffrey of Monmouth's version of the Arthur Tales, you know, the wife who speaks not. In an upcoming episode, we'll be looking at women who have had profound mystical religious experiences and the isolation that brings, so these poems may be a good pairing with that, too. Thanks so much for supporting the Classic English Literature Podcast. I very much appreciate your generosity. Until next time, all best. All best.